So we've been doing a series called No Longer Orphans. Today is our final, uh, the final day of this um, series. We started off talking about recognizing when we are orphans and outsiders. We talked about receiving a spirit of adoption, caring for outsiders and orphans, having a posture of humility, preparing ourselves, but knowing plans will change, right? And then today is the last day we're talking about coming home, coming to the table. Um, we've had lots of handouts, prayers, scriptures. I was preparing this week, praying, praying for you all, praying for us as a community and thinking, have I overdone it? Have we been talking about this too much? You know, is this going on too long? And I was reminded of Psalm 119, 15 that says, I meditate on your precepts and consider all your ways. That word meditate is to think about it, to ponder, to carefully read, to study, to contemplate, to look at every angle, to reflect on, to pray, to speak it. And I, I was like, you know what? It's good when we sink into a subject and sit with it for a while so that it gets really deep in us. And hopefully you've been going home, going uh, to work, going about your days, just really absorbing and saying, Lord, asking all the questions. How am I an orphan or an outsider? What does God want to change with that in me? Have I fully received and embraced a spirit of adoption? And then finally, how do I welcome orphans and outsiders to the family of believers, the household of faith? Because that's what we are. So I've been praying for all of you that we would know what it means to be sons and daughters, not just for us, but so that we can invite others in. I've been amazed at how many of you have come to me and said, do you know that I was adopted? Um, did you know that my father-in-law was adopted? Did you know this? Did you know that? One Sunday after church, a woman came to me and said, I was in and out of 30 different foster care homes. And I thought, oh, this is a message we need to hear, receive, absorb, be able to share with others. I'm praying that this place will be a place, our community, not this building, but our community will be a community where a spirit of adoption is just natural, intuitive, or just our gut compassionate response to people around us. So today it's coming home, coming to the table. A few years back, Kelly Jo was leading communion. And at the time she was working, I think I'm, I, she, she's here, so I hope I don't butcher this story, but she was working at um, a social services, I think at a detention center for youth, right? And she was working there and teaching and tutoring kids to read. And she's like, Sarah, I just heard, I just learned. Um, and she shared this with us that she learned in her training for tutoring these kids that the most important piece of furniture in the home was a table. And I thought, a table, why? And she said, because it's at the table that we learn, that we gather, that we eat, that we do homework, that we study together. And she, and she led communion in that way, saying, we got to come to the table because that's where the stuff of life happens. In some cultures, the table might be a rug, a floor, a blanket, but the idea is it's the place where anyone and everyone in the home can come and gather and be with others. 
So at our house, at the table, all sorts of crazy things and shenanigans happen. But in general, that's where the kids learn to eat. It's where our bodies are nourished, our physical bodies. We play games, do homework, we debate, and yes, we argue. Yes, it's a good place to learn how to fight clean, right? <laughs> There's teasing and crying. There's training. Someone taught us this. I wish I could remember who's um, boyfriend manners. That's how you get your eight-year-old or your seven-year-old when they're completely acting out, elbows on the table, chewing with their mouth open. You say, now, if you had a boyfriend and he was at the table with us, is this how you would behave? And so that's our cue word at our house, boyfriend manners. <laughs> um, it's where we learn to care for one another. You all know that this last year, Kay broke both of her wrists, and that was very difficult for her, first of all, but also for our family. She stayed with us, uh, we fed her, we cared for her, and she gave me permission to tell this story, and so did Jane. Because one day she went to physical therapy and she came back and, and she was celebrating the use of her hands and Jane just exhaled and said, I'm just glad I don't have to feed you toast anymore. <laughs> Kay was even happier than Jane. <laughs> I'm sure that was better for Kay. But it's at the table that we connect with one another, we find rest from our days, the challenges of life. It's at the table where we have birthday cakes and celebrations, right? So, We've been highlighting Care Portal this month. And just this week, Care Portal, for those of you who don't know, it connects us as a church with people in crisis supported by local government agencies. Um, so we can give in a helpful way to people in need and in crisis. So we got this message this week from a, a, case, a case worker. This request, oh, it's too hard to read, <laughs> sorry, is to help a mother and young child who are living together while mother is in residential treatment and recovery. She's attending full-time and unable to work while she begins the program. The toddler is struggling to eat at the table and is needing a height chair. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, all items at the facility that are brought must be new. Mom is unable to purchase a new high chair at this time, helping this small family on their journey together to safely enjoy a meal and sit long enough to complete it would be such a wonderful help. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you for any consideration given to this request. You can hear the caseworker advocating for this woman and her child. What an opportunity to give and help people come to a table safely. The other one we get often is for mattresses and bedding. And many other things we need, children need nourishment and they need rest, right? We can feel like that sometimes. These are physical needs, but we sometimes are like, I need a table, I need rest. We need a way to get to the table and get to rest. Jesus tells three stories that we're all pretty familiar with if we've been, if, if we've been reading the Bible long or you've been here long, but I'm going to just summarize them for you. Jesus tells three stories about people who are lost, who, who are far from the table, far from home. 
The first one, a real quick summary of the three, is about a shepherd um, who's in the wilderness and he loses one of his 100 sheep. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go get that one sheep. And when he does bring it home up on his shoulders, there's great rejoicing, Jesus says, in heaven. The second story is about a woman who loses a coin, one of her 10 coins, in the dark. So she lights a lamp and sweeps her whole house in a careful detail, aiming to find this one coin. And when she does find it, she calls her neighbors over and her friends. And she's like, let's celebrate. I found my money. <laughs> I found my coin. The third story is about a father with two sons, and one decides he wants to take all his inheritance and take off and do his own thing. He leaves his father's household and squanders it, but he eventually comes home, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But our friend Vivian Hibbert, just a teacher who was with us years ago, she has this table where she, you all know me, I love tables, I'm such a teacher, it's just how I am. But she kind of comments on it this way. She says, every extent of loss in our lives can be restored. And she's like, there could be a 1% loss with the lost sheep, a 10% loss or a 50% loss. And in the case of the lost sheep, we could be lost in a place of danger or as the coin lost in a place of darkness or like the sun lost in a place of distance. What is it for you? Is it danger, darkness, or distance? And then she reflects on those losses and says, one is a foolish loss, you know, just a sheep wandering off, which represents the foolishness of sin. The other is an accidental loss, the waste of sin. And the third is a deliberate loss, the extent of sin, when we deliberately leave and turn. But in all three stories, there's joy. There's joy in heaven, joy in the community or the household. And then there's joy in the home, right back where it all starts. We might find ourselves as orphans and outsiders because of our own foolishness, right? And we just do dumb things sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not you, but me, for sure. Other times, we end up orphans and outsiders by accident or neglect or because of something that's been done to us. Or maybe we end up outside there because we've deliberately chosen to do something different. We've deliberately said, I don't want to be part of that house anymore. But every time, every time we must know and we must tell others that we have a God who looks out for us, who finds us, who embraces us, puts us on his shoulders, brings us back, brings us home and feeds us. What are the things that keep us from coming home? I think about just danger when we feel danger. I can't make it home on my own. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. I risk too much. But Isaiah 41 10 says, do not fear for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe it's darkness. I can't find the way home. It's too hard to see. It's too hard to discern. I can't get there. John 8, 12 says, 
I am the, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Maybe it's distance. Maybe you're saying, I'll never make it. It's too far. It's too hard. It's too far away. I'm, I'm too far gone. But Romans 8, 38, 39 says, this is the apostle Paul who says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can make it. You will find a way when you have the light and you have someone going with you. It's not too dangerous. There's a shepherd who goes after you, a woman who lights a lamp, sweeps the house and searches up and down, a father who sees you in the distance, is filled with love and compassion and will run to you. So what is it that keeps you from running to the table. The other day, I was acting out about something at home. And I was like, why am I so angry? <laughs> why am I doing this? Why am I acting out? What is, it is my frustration, my response right now is not in connect, is not in proportion to the emotions I'm feeling. And so I said, Holy Spirit, please reveal to me what is the root cause? of this. And I'm so thankful. It took about 24 hours and I was texting a friend and it came to me. I was resting. I was relaxing. And it was like the Holy Spirit spoke it to me. You, you got a problem with this. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you all right now. I'm not going to be that vulnerable. But I was like, okay, Lord. Okay. Now I know what I, I need you to, to speak to me about. Now I know what you need to do in me. What is it for you that keeps you from coming home, being at rest, eating at the table? Religion and the enemy of our souls will tell you that you can't come to the table. Um, you're too far gone. You can't come. You're not worthy. But Jesus actually told these three stories in response to religious folks. So the opening of Luke 15 starts with this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. <laughs> Food, it's so important. <laughs> it's so important. It's part of the table. And Jesus tells a story to say, wait a minute. Everyone can come to the table. We got to eat together. So what happens when we turn around from that danger, that darkness, or that distance? What happens when we turn and start to come home? I'm going to go back to that story, that Luke 15 story of the father and his two sons. So the son, like we said, he took off with his inheritance. He went off and squandered it. His life was miserable. He's eating with the pigs. He's like, I got to go home. And I'm going to make a long story short for today, for today's purposes. But go home and read Luke 15 this week. But at some point, this boy realizes how messed up his, his life is and the mistakes he's made. And he decides he's going to try and come back home. 
And he realizes nothing can be as bad as what he's been doing and the distance that he's been living. So he starts his trek home. And this is where we're going to start. Um, Luke 15, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father says to the servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, with food. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. So let's break this down and talk about what happens step-by-step step when we come home. First of all, the father sees us while we're a long way off. God is already looking for you. God is looking for you. And then when God sees you, what's the gut reaction? What's the first response? Compassion and love. It's not scolding, not rejecting, not shame or disappointment, but sheer extravagant, never stopping love and compassion. And it's not just followed with a feeling, it's followed with a physical reaction. He starts running, running to you. It's physical, it's tactile, just like the food we eat that gets inside of us. He's running after us. And then a, a hug and a kiss. A hug and a kiss. The son confesses his wrong, but the father quickly moves to planning the son's reception. It's quickly. How are we going to welcome this person home? Then he tells the whole household to prepare. So everyone is involved. Come on, everyone, get this ready, get that ready. Come on, everyone. This is what's happening. Some in the house, the older brother doesn't receive him. And that's a really good story for another day. <laughs> but most of them do. Then the father clothes him with his finest robe. So he covers the son's past and brings him a new identity and new healing. He restores to the, son, the son to the present, giving him a ring, giving him authority in the house. And then he prepares the son for the future by giving him sandals for his feet, saying, you're gonna walk into your destiny. And then of course, it all finishes with food and a party, food and dancing. Music, a playlist, and dancing, celebration. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and come back to this. I want to tell you about something, a couple of things this week. Um, 
one of the things we've been working on is bringing in interns to help us here because we believe God wants us to reach youth and children in our valley. And so um, we've been in conversation with a young man from Moody, Moody Bible Institute, and his name is Daniel Slipenko. So if you recognize that name, that's a Ukrainian name. He speaks English really well, but he's a student via England to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And we've been talking with him and he's preparing to come here this summer to learn more about ministry in Utah. So his family is in Ukraine. So do you think I'm praying for Daniel? Do you need a name to pray for in the Ukraine? Will you please pray for the Slipenkos? Okay, pray for the Slipenkos. My sister sent me a text message. Someone she serves with in Penang, Malaysia. Oh, I just, I didn't write down her name. I think it's Vera. Her whole family is in Kiev. So will you pray for Rachel's friends who are serving in Malaysia, who have family in Kiev. Fernanda from Ecuador, who watches our live stream with her family in Ecuador. She sent me a text message. My cousin is in Kiev. He can't get out because the subways and the trains aren't safe. Will you please pray for my cousin? So yes, Fernanda, we're praying for your cousin in Kiev. My parents had friends that we grew up with. I remember meeting their son, but we were kids, you know. He and his wife are two hours west of Kiev. And I'm gonna tell you some stories about them and what they're doing right now because it relates to coming home and being home. Kim and Jed Johnson live in a village two hours west of Kiev. They're on the route out. So right now they're like a house just helping people get out. And she's a nurse. So she's helping people who've been kicked out of hospitals in Kiev as they head west to Poland. Um, what they're doing there is they um, live in a village. They work with a local Ukrainian village working with men and boys with severe, severe disabilities, just unbelievably severe disabilities, like things I don't think we even see much here. And um, it's really tough circumstances, all these boys in this institution and men. And so they work with interns going into the institution. They have a home where they've adopted and brought people in to their home. And then they work with the Ukrainian village to place people in homes in the village. And then they have adults living in the village, even in their own homes that they support and are guardians too. They've helped, um, their big dream is to get all the boys out of the institution and into homes at the table where they can be in community and family. And this is how it's gonna start to tie back together. Um, this is, the boys live with significant trauma, constant fear, constant fight or flight mode, high levels of stress, on guard, watching out for themselves. They have profound distrust of others because they've not been treated humanely for their entire lives. And this is what she said. This is notes I took from a podcast. So she didn't write it, she said it. As they start to feel safe, it's amazing to watch their transformation because they don't know who 
because we don't know who they are going to be until they feel safe. The person they are in the institution is not the same person they grow into when they are here with us in community and family. That's why we cannot judge who they are in the institution by their behavior there. We know their behavior there is not who they will be here. We can see who they are becoming when they feel safe, they can sleep, they start to accept affection, they begin to show their own preferences for things and express their own desires. Some of the things she said really struck me. You can't judge the boys by who they are in the dark and difficult place of the institution. You don't know who they are when they're in that place. It's only as they start to feel safe with food, protection, attention, that transformation begins to take place. And when they are in community, they finally grow into who they are meant to be. There's something about the way they love these boys and these men that reflects the heart of God for orphans and outsiders. There's another story in the Old Testament about a king named King David. Now, King, um, king David became king after King Saul. And King Saul did not like David. And so before David ever became king, Saul was trying to kill David. So that's for those of you who don't know the story. There's this King Saul who's just trying to kill this young guy who's anointed to be king. And it's just antagonism, frustration, and conflict. But God protects this young man, David, um, eventually, King David or Saul is not king anymore, and David becomes king. And after many years of being king, God puts something on David's heart and says, I want you to go back to Saul's family and bless Saul's family. So imagine God asking you to bless the family of someone who is trying to kill you. Imagine God coming to you and saying, I want you to go bless the family of your worst enemy. But David does it. David sends out word throughout the land and he says, let's go find anybody in this family that we can bless. And so he ends up with Saul's grandson, a man named Mephibosheth. It's a mouthful. I'll try and I'm sure I'll butcher it. But here's the thing about Mephibosheth. He was lame in both feet, but King David invites him to Jerusalem and says, you're going to eat daily at my table. So the son of his enemy, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to bring him to the best table in the kingdom. He's going to eat with me. He's going to eat at this table. And even though he's lame, he comes and he sits at the table and we don't, you don't see his lameness. It's under the table, but he has the food, he has the feast, he has a celebration of the king. 
Mephibosheth's lameness was covered at the table. His loss was restored. He was provided for. He was protected. These Ukrainian men and boys and their losses that are severe, they're covered at the table and in the home. And they get to be seen. They get to have with new eyes. It's not only that they see with new eyes, they are seen with new eyes. The Johnsons have a big dream. They can see that institution in it. Their dream seems far off and impossible, but they're burning with compassion and love to see those, every person in that institution put in a home at a table. The constant question is everyone, you know, why aren't you leaving? Why aren't you leaving? And they just, they can't bring themselves to leave. The people in their home, the people in their table, the people in their village. Their hearts are filled with love and compassion. There are hugs and kisses. There's a household. They call them the village moms that receive these boys. The boys have been adopted. They get new clothes and identity. They get new voice and authority when they get to choose their own preferences and express their own desires. And their lives are transformed. And it's not just the boys and the men's lives that are transformed. The, the local village is being transformed. And the Johnsons and the people that help them are being transformed. The father welcomes us home and the household and the village rejoice. She writes a lot about celebration. She said, celebration is the most important thing we do for these people when they come home. She said, and we, she says, it drives us crazy because they're not Western and their kids aren't Western. And these, and all these men and boys have been ra raised on really old Soviet um, polkas and music. And so the playlist is like, you know, the kids are like, this is the most old, outdated playlist on the planet. But when it's the boys' birthdays, they play the playlist they want. <laughs> they give them the food they want, and they dance, and they sing. And it's a celebration unique to that person. Song of Songs 2-4 speaks about, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. God brings us to the house. God brings you to the house. God wants to bring your neighbors, your coworkers, your kids' friends, your parents' friends, your neighbors, everyone. God wants to bring us to the house. And he brought me to the banqueting house. He brought me. It's such an, an individual thing. The poetry in the book of Song of Songs is about God and me. God sees you and sees you as an individual. And when it speaks about a banner of, over us being love, I love how the New Living Version puts it. It's obvious how much he loves me. 
Are we obvious in our love for orphans and outsiders? Are we, is it obvious? Is it clear? Do, do everywhere we go, is there a banner over us that says love? I am so loved. It's obvious how much God loves me. So it's obvious how much God loves you. It's obvious how much God loves you. It's a yeah. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. So here's the invitation today in the final day of this, this month where we've been asking God to, to open our hearts to orphans and outsiders. There's so much more we could say. But the invitation is to come home, come to the table, because with Jesus at the table, he might have you eating fish by the lake. Other times it might be grain in a field. Sometimes we sit together with just him and me at the banqueting table. Other times we're sitting with lots of other lost people. Because with Jesus at the table, water turns to wine, bread is multiplied, tears are shed, the past is covered, feet are washed, we get to eat and we get to rest. Amen. We're going to finish today with communion. I was like, I know it's, we do communion on the first and the third week of every month, right? But today I was like, I cannot talk about this and not eat something with you all. <laughs> and last week when Corgi was talking about our communion emblems and he's like, just imagine you're tearing it off a loaf. <laughs> so I bought loaves today and I pre-cut them so they're easy to dig in into and pull. Um, but that's how we're going to finish tonight, today, is uh, finding one another, getting in small groups, finding one person, finding two. If you'd rather be alone, bring your bread maybe to the front or something, I don't know. But let's find one another and let's share pieces with one another. Let's break bread with one another. I'm looking around in the room and, and I think I know most of you. I'll have bread with Ismail and Betsy. Let's do that together. But for the rest of you, find someone that you can connect with and, and, and let's um, take communion together. Um, we're going to close with that. So if anybody would like prayer, if you're online and you'd like prayer, just reach out to us via email or um, uh, social media. And then we have a prayer um, people who will pray with you also at this table over here, if you'd like to meet at this table, if you're here in the building, but um, have communion with someone this week, have people at your table, at a coffee shop, around the water cooler in the break room, eat bread with people, take the cup with someone this week, in Jesus name, amen, amen.